Hi, Kirby. Hi, Sarah. Welcome, Welcome to, to Los, Los Angeles. Angeles. Welcome, Glamgelinos. We hope you stay a while. <laughs> a lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, hello. We have an incredible guest today. I know a lot of you are fans of this person because she is a powerhouse in the green beauty space. She has a 10-year-old brand. This brand has longevity, which I think is very important this day and age. It's Briogeo's founder and CEO, Nancy Twine. What I've learned is that not every founder should be a CEO, to be quite frank. And there's no fault in that, but when you have a founder who is also a great CEO, it can make for some magic, that's for sure. Nancy turned Briogeo into a beloved brand. I know so many of you are obsessed with her products. And she was the youngest African-American woman to launch her brand in Sephora, which is something to applaud because it was, I believe, 2015. At that time, diversity and inclusion was not a priority for these retailers. Nancy went from working on Wall Street, which she'll detail in this interview, to launching this brand, which was inspired by her mother. Now, 10 years later, it's still thriving, still on top, still a beloved brand that people keep going back to. I'm so excited for you to get to know a little bit more about her. We are going to talk obviously about her career journey and what separates Briogeo from everything else, but we're also going to talk about serious issues that we've tackled on the podcast before, and I really think that Nancy's point of view is not only crucial, but extremely refreshing to hear. The other thing I love about Nancy is that she's very forthcoming with information. She wants to share what she's learned, and she wants to help people. You can tell she's a helper through and through. She's actually just launched herself on Intro. It's a platform, an app rather, that both Sarah and I are on. So if you want to pick Nancy's brain, that's one way to do it. But also she launched nancytwine.com. It's free. It's her website. She posts content that may be relevant to your interests in terms of business, lifestyle, all that good stuff. So a variety of ways to get in touch with Nancy. But without further ado, let's get into the convo. Nancy Twine, how are you this morning? I'm doing so well. I'm dialing in from Miami Beach, Florida. It is a beautiful oh. sunny day and it's Friday. Yes, and I yes, and it's afternoon for you. So yeah. you're like about to hit the end of your work day pretty soon, exactly. hopefully. Exactly. Yes. Good. Are you you're not based in Miami? I am since the pandemic. You are? Yeah, I was in New York forever and it's so funny. I was at an event last night and someone asked how many people moved to Miami Beach during the pandemic and like 90% of the people there raised their hand. So wow, I'm one of those. <laughs> oh my gosh, that is so funny. I feel like people from New York went to Miami and then people from California went to Texas. Exactly. To so it was either, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Florida or Texas. That's where everyone went. They said, I don't want the state income tax. We're getting the heck out of here. <laughs> We're moving south. I love that. Do you, are you enjoying it? I love it so much. It's been such a lifestyle upgrade. 
I'm a big weather person. That was really the main reason why I came to Miami. Um, I've experienced so many brutal New York City winners, and it really can affect your mood. Right. Like, it's really tough, especially because now our entire company is fully remote. So I'm spending so much time indoors. And it was really hard to do that in New York during the winter. Right. At least in Miami, I can go outside. I can go for walks. I have the sunshine pouring in. It's it's a really nice lifestyle change. And Nancy, you're originally from West Virginia. Is that right? My mom is from West Virginia. I okay. actually grew up in Long Island. Okay, amazing. You'll probably yeah. hear that the accent creep up at different points during this conversation. I love it. I'm actually curious. We're going to get into what's on your face. So I guess this is probably like the apt time to ask, but how have you had to change your beauty routine from living in New York to moving to Miami Beach? Yeah, it's a really good question because my face is definitely a lot more hydrated naturally since I've been in Miami Beach. I think just because my skin produces a lot more um, oil being in the sun and just also the the humidity. I actually, a couple of years ago, I started doing some angel investing and a lot of the brands that I invest in are in the beauty category. And I only invest in brands that I actually use and love. <laughs> Um, so pretty much everything I'm using right now is a brand that I'm invested in. And I actually just switched my um, face cleanser. One of the brands that I'm invested in is Hyperskin. They're at Sephora. Yep. And they have this really beautiful new gel cleanser. And it has uh, mandelic acid in it. And it's it's nice because it has the the jelly foaming sort of dissolving quality, but without stripping your skin. And that's so important to me Um, because actually one of the things that I learned on my own before it became a big beauty topic is that the skin barrier piece is real. And I was doing things in the past that was disrupting my skin barrier, didn't realize it, and it was causing all things like acne, dryness, et cetera. So I'm very, very mindful about using products that don't strip my skin. That's amazing. Nancy, you know what's so funny? I feel like the skin barrier conversation kind of got a facelift in a way because I remember before the pandemic in 2019, the whole convers- there was a conversation about your skin barrier, but it was focused on the microbiome. Yes. And I think it was almost like too inside baseball for people to fully understand <sighs> what a microbiome of your skin even means. So it's almost like the more palatable version to say, instead of your microbiome, it's your skin barrier. We hear barrier. There's something about that that you're like, no, I need to restore that. I need to fix that. Exactly. (laughs) Completely. Completely. Because it's true. When it's out of whack or your skin is stripped, your skin starts to freak out. It starts to overcompensate. And sometimes literally acne and breakouts, it's literally your skin talking to you saying, treat me differently. At least that's what I've learned. Yes. Yeah. Right. I was at an event last night and I spoke to someone and she was like, not to sound all LA, but I have like a very intuitive skincare routine. And I'm like, no, I feel the same way. And maybe it's because I've been in this industry for so long, but I don't use the same regimen every morning and every night. I really base it off of what my skin needs. Completely. And I feel so, I feel almost like I've been given a gift that I can understand and communicate with my skin in that way. Because I know a lot of people can't. That's why a lot of people listen to this podcast to try to figure this out, you know? Do you feel like that? I completely feel that way. 
And actually one of the products I was going to mention, I'm not obviously an investor in this brand, but it's <laughs> Kiehl's Barrier Cream. Oh my gosh, that product is so legit. Really? It is really, really good. I actually used it the other day and I forget what I did. I did something to my skin where it felt stripped and I knew that if I didn't use a barrier cream, my, my skin was going to freak out, but yep. it has the most incredible texture. It's just like, it's like perfect. So that's like my go-to Ooh. barrier cream. And then I will tell you, since I've been in Miami, I do use sunscreen. I yep. use, um, Supergoop has this nice sunscreen that has vitamin C built into it. Nice. But even still, I have been noticing that I've been getting like little sunspots, just like even around hairline. my hairline. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so um, Edom is one of the companies that um, I invest in, I mentor, and they have this dark spot serum that's really, really, really good. I absolutely love it. So those are really like my go-tos for my face. Right I, I mean, I'm looking at your gorgeous stunning makeup i mean y'all if you haven't seen nancy please look her up she's gorgeous <laughs> thank you you know on all these calls this morning waiting to see you i didn't even get to do my eye makeup and i, I like you look like a glamazon just like natural and beautiful oh my gosh please what's on your lips so on my lips right now i actually have a few things i mixed um one of rare beauties like matte velvety lip whatever it is with um Ami Cole, they have like these lip oils. That lip oil is so, so good. good. It's really, really good. And sometimes I'll do that. Like I like the color of the rare, but it's too drying. So I need to layer a lip oil on top. But like totally like you said, you've just got to mix and match and find what works for you. Right. Right. Yeah. Like, are you a big foundation girl? Like how like how is Miami when it comes to find foundation at this point? <laughs> I only really wear foundation if I'm going out and I don't do like full face foundation. So I will tell you a product and I was, um, someone gave it to me. I don't know if I would have ever tried it on my own, but it's the Tarte Shape Tape. I could never do like a full face of that stuff because it's just too heavy. <laughs> so I literally, I put like a strip under my eye, a strip under the other eye, and then I literally use that around my entire face. So I start with my eye and then I just blend it around my face so that I'm getting a little bit more coverage under the eye and then just like very light coverage on the rest of my face. One would say that that's what a professional makeup artist actually does. They only, oh, apply, really? yeah, they only apply it to the areas that you really need it and then kind of buffer it out so that when you look at somebody, naturally your whole face is not one color. Like you have different right. shadows and different contours of your face, especially when you move outward. Exactly. Like you were talking even about your hairline and like getting more like sunspots in those areas. Yeah. Naturally, that's where the sun's going to hit. So a lot of, I know Katie Jane Hughes talks yep. about this. A lot of my makeup artist friends talk about really focusing on the areas you need it and then just kind of very lightly blending it outward. Exactly. And then you're able to use those heavier products, right? Completely, completely. And I, I'm like also very conscious of not overdoing it with the foundation because I feel like foundation is one of those products that can clog your pores, especially if you're doing it every single day. And then you need to use something harsher to unclog your pores. So it's all about like balance. I love to talk to people about their stories. And because we talked about this earlier, you and I have not actually met in person. I really want to hear it straight from the horse's mouth. So 
Growing up, what were your ideals of beauty? Like, do you remember the beauty brands that you first ever remember seeing or picking up? And and in terms of your family, like, what were you taught was beautiful? Like, who did you idolize? Yeah, it's so funny. I just remember growing up reading Seventeen magazine. That was like my go-to magazine. And then I was actually really into fashion. So I was getting all the catalogs like Delia's and Alloy. And for me, it was like the people who I was seeing in the catalogs, in the magazines, that is just what I saw as being cool, being modern, being relevant, aspirational. Um, So that's where I kind of took a lot of my ideas from. And I will say growing up, I was definitely a lot more concerned about what I was wearing clothes wise than makeup. I actually don't think I started wearing makeup until high school. And it was really by accident. I remember going to Nordstrom because I grew up in Long Island and what you do on the weekends for fun is you walk around the mall and and you just like find stores to go into. You just, you know, create a journey. And I remember going into Nordstrom and they had this really great, you know, sort of like beauty department. And I was just walking around and I guess there was like a beauty brand salesperson who's like, I'd love to do your makeup. And she did my makeup and it was the most transformational experience at that age because I just didn't realize what makeup could do. And I don't even think I realized that a lot of the girls that I was seeing in the catalogs and magazines were probably wearing makeup. That's why they looked so amazing. I know. Mind-blowing concept there, right? <laughs> right, right. As exactly. a teen. And also just to give some context, because some people who may be listening may think that this is so weird, but I grew up without YouTube, without Instagram, without any social media. So I wasn't being fed these tutorials yeah. and brands and all of this stuff. So it was definitely much, very much a self-discovery as opposed to having it like thrown in your face. Oh my gosh. I actually love what you just said there because self-discovery, it's so hard now because you're constantly on your phone. Yeah. So you're being told things by people. You're not usually walking right. in somewhere and just kind of trying to figure it out. When I do yeah. go into those places... I love to peruse and just see what is out on the shelf because we have the luxury of getting like scent product or like you're testing maybe product or brands you invest in. And so we get these things long before they're even out on the shelves. And I'm always curious to see like, okay, what's catching people's eyes? How are they navigating these stores? How like, where is everybody congregated around in a Sephora at the Grove in Los Angeles? Yeah. Like it's a very fascinating thing. And I feel like I, it makes me sad that the younger generation doesn't have that element of just walking in somewhere and being like, I have no, I've never even heard of this particular brand, but it says it does this. So I'm going to try it and see if it works for me. Exactly. I know. So in a lot of ways, I do feel really grateful for the fact that I didn't have kind of social media's influence on how I started discovering beauty as a teen. Okay, so growing up then, what did you want to be when you grew up? You know, I don't know that I really knew what I wanted to be um, until I started, you know, I was probably in high school and I started getting a flavor for my interests. 
And it's funny because I, I feel like I've always had like this innate sort of entrepreneurial self in that I was always like coming up with these little like business ideas, but they were kind of rooted in things that I was like creating. So for example, um, actually when I was in middle school, um, I'm sure you obviously remember the movie Clueless and the feather pens. And in my middle school, like the girls started trying to make their own feather pens, but they just like weren't right. Like they just didn't look good and they were like falling apart. And I figured out how to make feather pens look like the ones in the movie. And this is like before Etsy and all of that stuff. So I be I like created my own Etsy shop essentially. IRL. And I started selling, <laughs> yeah, IRL, exactly. And I started selling these feather pens to the girls in school. And I was like, wow, that's really cool. I can like create something and if people like it, they're going to buy it and now I actually have money to buy clothes. This is awesome. And so just like throughout high school, I had like these little ventures in college, I actually had a jewelry company. It was online. I was like sourcing jewelry from Asia and India and selling it to the different like sororities because I was doing custom colors. Like, so that, that sort of like innate entrepreneurial self was something that always fulfilled me and excited me. But I, I don't know that I realized until later that I could actually take that sort of passion and actually like turn it into like a real business. Were you a play it safe type of person? Even though you were an entrepreneur, you still went to school and like got a formal degree and then you were like, okay, I have to have a full-time job when I leave college. Exactly. Yeah, 100%. Especially too, because I had college loans. I knew that I was going to have to support myself after school Um, there was no sort of fallback. So I had no option but to go into a career that I could like start making money. And that's ultimately why I chose to go into finance because I felt like to finance was the closest thing to business. Business was the closest thing to entrepreneurism. It was like somewhat connected. Totally. Let's get into being an entrepreneur. You have an investment banking background, right? Actually, sales and trading. Okay, okay. Which is a little different. Okay, yeah. can you, as someone who truly does not know these differences, can you explain what that is and like what you were doing on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, so sales and trading. So there's like a lot of different types of sales and trading, but what I was doing is I was helping companies in North America that had exposure to commodity prices because just like stock prices, commodity prices go up and down. And I was basically helping them lock in prices today for commodity costs that they would incur in the future. So like, for example, if you're an airline company and you purchase jet fuel, you can't like necessarily like change your prices constantly depending upon where jet fuel prices go. So if you like lock in your price for the next five years, you have like cost certainty. So that's basically what we were doing. Oh, okay. So the big time stuff, the stuff that people really need to know, uh, companies really need to know. So how did you get from that into Briogeo? I mean, I was not planning ever on starting a hair care brand. It's not like this thing that I wanted to do since I was a kid. 
Um, unfortunately, halfway through my career in finance, I lost my mom and it became this real turning point for me because I think in so many ways I was very naive and that I didn't realize that like life could be cut short for anyone. Like I didn't realize that until that happened. And I started to just think about how I was spending my time differently. And, you know, even though I was working for a great brand name, Goldman Sachs, um, I was earning good money. I wasn't like showing up each day, like feeling like pumped, you know, like, like, wow, like I am living life. This is awesome. Like this is your purpose in life. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And so it was from that moment that I like started doing a lot of soul searching to figure out, okay, you know, you spend so much of your life working. If you were going to work, you have to do something you're passionate about. And I had no idea what my passions were. So I had to do like a lot of um, introspection. And during that time, I kept thinking back to memories actually that I had with my mom. She was a physician and a chemist. And growing up, she used her chemistry background to make a lot of our family's personal care products. We would literally go to the health food store. We'd buy these like very simple oils. We'd buy extracts. We'd buy like different like butters, salts, sugars, like just the whole nine yards and bring them home and make like these very simple like body scrubs and face masks and hair products. And I was kind of like the sous chef, like helping to mix and measure ingredients. And my mom was doing all the chemistry. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, how cool would it be to figure out how to actually create a brand that was built on this idea of like simplicity of ingredients and building formulations that were clean and not complicated. And I think at the same time that I was thinking about this, I was starting to see for the first time ever, like natural clean brands popping up, but it wasn't really happening in prestige. It was happening like on the shelves of Whole Foods. It was like around the time that like Whole Body was created. And I was like, oh, this is, yeah. I was like, oh, this is interesting. So like, you know, natural and organic, it's not just food anymore. Like personal care is starting to use these labels. That's really interesting. And so I started putting two and two together and it just became this sort of journey that started unfolding as I started thinking through um, what became like the initial concept for Briogeo. Wow. Okay. So you start to see kind of this almost not untapped market because you were starting to see a little bit of it, but maybe obviously not specifically in hair either. Yeah, not in hair at all. And then definitely not premium because I had tried some of this stuff at Whole Body and other places. And I was like, I like what they're doing, but this isn't, you know, like maybe like the lotions were watered down or the shampoo still left your hair feeling dirty. So there was this whole like efficacy piece missing. So then the mission became like, okay, clean plus efficacious plus, especially with hair, because I I will say out of all the beauty categories, hair historically has been the category that's been most segregated because of like the very distinct differences that exist in hair texture. And in a lot of ways, so many people who don't have textured hair being uncomfortable 
with learning about it and how to formulate for it. And so part of the idea too was that I wanted to create a, a hair brand because I, I have naturally curly hair. Hair has always been this very sort of self-discovering, test and learn category for me. And I had a connection to hair. And I also wanted to sort of break down those walls that existed with like, okay, if you are ethnic, you're going to use these brands. And if you're not ethnic, you're going to use all of these brands. And I hated that. And so part of what I wanted to do was to really create a brand that everyone could identify with as their own. And to also, again, just break down those, those sort of barriers that existed in such a large beauty category. In your opinion, what was the point of differentiation for Briogeo though? Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, just some of the fundamentals of, of being clean, one, was like a huge differentiator back then. Not so much today, but back then it was. But also um, clean wasn't even the term, right? Like, right. Did, it was like maybe were like, you more thinking like it was like natural? green. Yeah, it was like yeah, yeah, exactly. green. natural, green, okay. e- eco, eco friendly. Yeah, <laughs> right, right, okay. right, exactly. <laughs> but I think the big thing, and ultimately this is what put Briochio on the map, because we started winning awards, like we started getting recognized for innovation. It was really the first time that clean met the efficacy piece and was backed up by actual clinical claims. And I think that was something like very pioneering we were doing as well, because at the time, hair brands weren't investing in clinicals, like skincare was, but hair really wasn't. And so I knew because this whole clean category was so new, and a lot of the brands that were in it, weren't really performing. If we were going to be clean, we needed, and, and, and also say that we were effective, like we needed to back that up. So that became a big part of it too, is like actually doing the testing and investing in the research that really substantiated what we were doing was working. And I think that that helped too. Sarah and I just talked about this. There was a big story on Beauty Independent about, you know, does the beauty industry now have a stability problem? And a lot of the cosmetic chemists that contributed to the story were like, unfortunately, this the clean movement has kind of made it so that they're saying, okay, we can't use this particular preservative, but then they're not advancing it to a point where they're basically kind of playing like a, it's like Tetris, like, okay, we're going to use this preservative here with this same formula, but does that actually make the product stable? Right. I feel like the industry is critical of clean now because there's so much of it, but you guys launched in 2013, right? So this was like before this was even really considered a category, don't you think? A hundred percent. Yeah. And and it was actually one of the reasons why. So, you know, long story short, I ended up taking PTO from Goldman, went to this big beauty trade show in Vegas called Cosmoprof. I'm sure you've heard of it. And that's where I met the buyers at Sephora who had never seen the brand before. They're like, what is this? And then they use the products and came back and said, oh my gosh, we love your brand, but we really love your formulas. We want to take it on. And we really haven't built out our hair category, but what you're doing is so unique. We don't have any other brands who are clean. We don't have any other brands who are using sustainable packaging. We don't have any other brands who are catering to all hair texture types. And then that kind of helped to prove the thesis of, yeah, there really was this white space opportunity. 
When was that? When, when you took that PTO from Goldman and met with Sephora at Cosmoprof, when was that? That was 2013. Oh my gosh. Okay, so way, way ten early years on. ago. Ten I know. Years ago. Congratulations. <laughs> Happy anniversary. Do you remember Thank the you. like? What's your exact anniversary date? Do you know? It's like September fourth, twenty twenty three. <gasps> it's like coming little, up. Little Virgo. Little Virgo <laughs> yeah, baby. Exactly. <laughs> and I was like, I was like twenty eight years old. You know, like I was pretty young trying to figure all this stuff out. But I do think that that's one thing that's inspirational in part of your story is that you didn't know you weren't born into this category or into this industry. You didn't know all of these things, right? Like you were just figuring it out as you went. And also the industry at that point, you couldn't just like pop up a YouTube video on like, this is how I got into Sephora. You know what I mean? Exactly. And actually Kirby, to that point, I actually do believe sometimes there's a bit of a benefit to being naive because the opposite of that is trying to run with like some playbook that because you saw someone else do it this way, you think it's going to work for you that way. And you just become so like pigeonholed to this like one way of doing things. And so I think because I was naive, one, I was leading with my heart and not my head which I think can actually, you know, pay off. But two, again, I just feel like I was so open to like trying and learning and taking feedback. And I think ultimately like all of that stuff mattered to getting us to this point. Also, yeah, you're not scared when you are naive. Yeah. You you right. almost have exactly. this, this confidence that is good to have, but maybe doesn't have a track record. So... <laughs> You're kind of right. just like, okay, we're going to see if this works. I I love that. Okay, so Sephora was all in early on from the jump, which is incredible. Yes. Like not yeah. a normal instance yeah. for most brand founders. <laughs> I, I bet there's some brand founders that are listening right now going, damn it, Nancy. Lucky bee. But I'm curious, how has your brand evolved from first working with Sephora to now? Uh, like has there been any messaging changes like has like how has the packaging changed if at all what was your you know number one skew back then versus now like I, I would love to know all of the things totally so I tend to believe that like a founder can't be everything a founder typically has like at least one like core competency and for me it was formulation formulation was like number one, because I was like, I don't even have a brand if I don't have the formulation piece, right? I know some people think differently, but that's how I think. And so I feel like in the early days, I poured so much into formulation that I probably wasn't as intentional about doing a lot of things that like brands coming out today are like just doing so well out of the gate. Like their website looks incredible. They have like the beautiful brand book, all the photography, the stylized assets. Like we didn't have any of that, like at all. Like it was pretty bare bones. And so it really wasn't until I started building out my team, bringing on marketers, bringing on, um, you know, a creative director to really sort of help balance my strengths. So I think that's probably one of the biggest ways that like the brand has evolved over the years is through just developing the actual brand identity. How many products did you initially launch with at Sephora? 
So I could only afford to launch four products. And because, you know, the, the concept of, of hair care for all was so important. I'm like, oh my gosh, how do I do that with four SKUs? So I had one shampoo for all hair texture types. Then I had a curl conditioner. I had a repair conditioner and then I had a volumizing conditioner. And so at least I felt like I was speaking to like a pretty like, you know, vast um, subsection of hair needs. What is the most popular product? Well, what was the most popular conditioner then? And now what is your most popular product? Because you have so many. (laughs) So you know what's so crazy? So even though we've gone from like four SKUs to like a few dozen SKUs now, our number one product 10 years ago is still our number one product today, which is like wild. It's the Don't Despair Repair Deep Conditioning (gasps) Mask. Oh my gosh, I love this. Yeah, it's like a true hero. She has longevity, yes. Exactly, it's a true hero. And I think part of the reason why it's number one is because it's such a universal product that everyone can use, everyone can benefit from. Like I remember a couple years ago, I was actually at a Sephora meeting and we were just sitting at a table and one of the girls who has like very fine, straight, hair was like, Oh my gosh, I love don't despair repair mask. It's my holy grail. And then the girl sitting next to her had like uh textured 4C coils. And she was like, don't despair repair is my holy grail. And it was like in that moment where I was like, wow, these two women couldn't have more different hair textures, but they're identifying this like one product as theirs. Like that is amazing. I want to talk to you about the consumer perception of Black-owned brands that sell to larger companies. Mm -hmm. This has been a huge talking point uh, from earlier this year. Um, For those of you who maybe didn't hear that episode, we covered it. There was a big conversation around uh, Miel selling potentially and also you know, someone like Alex Earl, who is a, you know, white 22-year-old college co-ed promoting the brand and the conversation around that and whether or not it's okay to do that, if if she should have done that, if it was taking up space in a place that she shouldn't have been. And then further, does Miel selling take away the goodness of the brand? Does it make it less good um, moving forward? I'm curious from your point of view, Nancy, what are your thoughts on 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 these two things? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, from the, the TikTok or Instagram, I don't know what platform it was. I mean, I think at the end of the day, if you have a product, you cannot control who's going to use it, who's going to talk about it on Instagram. There's no way to control that. From what I know, I think the frustration was around the fact that this beloved product by the Black community ended up getting so publicized across the internet that it sold out. And the thought was that it sold to a lot of non-Black consumers that when Black consumers wanted to get the product, they couldn't. And I would feel frustrated just regardless. If I can't find the product that I love, I am going to be frustrated, absolutely. But I think there's a spectrum of why people are frustrated. I think some people weren't just frustrated because it was sold out. I think people were frustrated by the fact that someone who perhaps this product wasn't originally marketed to, you know, sort of created this situation. Um, and so that is, you know, kind of the the reality that I think 
you know, a lot of brands, you know, have exposure to, especially given um, how viral a lot of these platforms are, and you just never know what's going to happen, good or bad. Um, what I will say, and I actually am very passionate about this topic of just in general around M&A and sort of what it means. I will say selling your company is a personal decision. I don't think there is a right or wrong, but I think what people have to understand is that as you are scaling your business, as you are creating success, you need more capital. You have to buy more inventory. You have to hire more people. You have to spend more on marketing. There are some companies that stay private for a very long time because they have a cost structure that allows them to take their profits and continue to reinvest back into the company. But there are a lot of companies that have a different financial structure. Maybe their margins aren't as strong or whatever the reason is, they need outside investment. And what can end up happening over time is that as you start to continue to raise money over and over again, you as a founder, you start to become diluted, right? And a lot of founders have to make the decision, do I continue to want to become diluted to the point where I don't even have a say in my company, I don't even own any of the equity, or do I want to get it to a point where I still own a decent amount and let another strategic whoever come in and actually buy the company so that one, I'm able to create wealth for myself, for the black community, whatever it may be, and still potentially, depending upon how you write your contract post-exit, actually have a say in the brand. And so I think there's just a lot more sort of strategic detail that needs to be considered. And it is unfortunate because oftentimes, I will just be honest, white men get celebrated on covers of magazines when they sell or IPO their company. And I do think that the founder views success as selling or IPOing their company for a certain reason, it should be celebrated. Um, but I totally get the fear that a lot of people have about a brand getting acquired, the formulas changing, you know, management changing, the founder getting kicked out. Those are real concerns which is why I think for founders that play a really instrumental role in the organization, how you negotiate that contract is really important, but also too, especially if you're a black founder, and I'm very, very passionate about this. If you sell your company, I believe you owe it to the industry that you're in to pave the way for other black founders who are coming up in the industry. And that's why I've been investing. That's why I've been mentoring and advising and I think so long as you can take that successful moment and use it to fuel that cycle of progress for the Black community, I think that's incredible. I, when you were telling this story and, and you're giving your opinion on it, it made me think, I wonder if we weren't at a point right now in the beauty world where founder story is so important to the brand. Mm. If people would not be as upset or outraged or even really have an opinion when their favorite brand does sell or IPOs. I, I'm coming yeah. at this for obviously from like a journalist point of view because mm -hmm. I know that when I get a pitch from a publicist about a new brand, 
it's not necessarily the story of why the product is incredible. It's not to your point that the formulation is exceedingly good. It's going to change your life. It's this brand founder Mm. is going to be the person you connect with. They are the face of that brand and they are essentially going to be like the marketing strategy behind the brand. Mm -hmm. And so I do feel like when you're, you know, we talk a lot about paying with your dollar. Like it's your decision where you want to put your money and who you want to support based on your beauty choices. And, Mm -hmm. and I kind of notoriously on Los Angeles say like, I don't care about a founder story. Just give me a good product. Mm-hmm. Like, I like you know, like SkinCeuticals. I don't know anything about a founder story there. I just, you know, like putting <laughs> CE Farouk on my face because it works. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I wonder, you know, to your point, like if if we weren't where we are currently in the state of this community, if this would even be a conversation, it would just be like, hell yeah. You know, go meow, sell, right. like bro- broaden your horizons, make generational wealth for your family, start another brand afterwards, you know, like figure it out. Right. Such an interesting conversation to, to really like hone in on and think is, is the founder of it all. Because when you launched, was the brand really focused on like the you of it all or was it really the offering that you had to pro- and the service you had to provide to people? Yeah, it's a really, really good question. And I will say I was very intentional about not being the face of the brand because of what we were trying to do in terms of um, really catering to all hair texture types. There was fear that if everyone saw me, someone that didn't have textured hair or who was white or who was Indian or Asian wouldn't identify with the brand. So I had to be very mindful that, you know, in our marketing, in our messaging, we have to show all different types of people. It can't just be me. I think it would be different if I was serving consumers with my hair texture type. Absolutely. But because it was broader than that, I had to be cognizant. And I will be totally honest with you. I remember going to stores and doing trainings with, um, you know, staff, and they always automatically assumed that Briogeo was only for textured hair. And so that that's when a lot of people would go into the store, the salespeople wouldn't even recommend Briogeo if they didn't have textured hair. And so I had to like really sort of unwind that and say, we actually have products for all people. If a client does have textured hair, these are the ones we recommend. If they have fine straight hair, these are the ones they recommend. So there was a lot of education to really, you know, break down that barrier. Your your comment made me think of something else, especially in the like skincare conversation right now, which is um, you mentioned Edom, which you invest in, and they make products that are formulated, clinically tested, developed by black chemists dermatologists, things of that nature. And and their first product was a hyperpigmentation product specifically for melanated skin. And I've seen two sides of this conversation. I've seen the conversation that is, we need more brands that are catering specifically to the needs of black skin tones because notoriously in dermatology studies, we're not even considered. We're not even featured in these books, right? So it's very important to have this. But then the flip side, kind of to what you're saying with Briogeo is, well, why is it because it's a black founded brand that it's just, you know, catered to black men, women, non-binary friends? Why is it the conversation of, well, 
it's black, so it has to be specifically for this group of people. It's not really a conversation. But it also kind of makes me sad that you you were like, I can't actually be the face of my brand because I don't want people to assume it's just for people with certain hair textures. Yeah, I mean, it's a very, you know, sort of complicated topic because, you know, I will say brands that do cater to very specific groups are needed and they need to exist. And I support and invest in many of those brands. But for Briogeo and my vision, it was definitely, you know, it was it was broader than that. And again, like I said, I think hair care is one of those categories that are a bit more nuanced because there is such a wide spectrum of texture and needs that you almost have to be really, really intentional. If you are trying to go broad within hair, you have to be intentional about making sure the consumer sees that spectrum. They need to see someone that they identify with. The skinification of hair has become a huge talking point in 2023. And your brand has done an exceptional job always of, of utilizing skincare like ingredients into hair care y'all didn't have really like a hard uh, you know marketing decision here like you're like we already have the product we just need to you know promote it i'm curious what what trends yeah. are you thinking we're going to see more of in maybe the coming months or the next few years when it comes to the hair category yeah i mean i think a couple different things and i think we've already started seeing this but if you just look at like the landscape of hair brands and and new launches that are coming out at sephora so many of them are so rooted in science and claims which again 10 years ago when i launched like hair care brands weren't rarely we're doing claims and now it's becoming just a lot more science-based it's like because again too like hair care is such a commodified product that a lot of people can buy for less than ten dollars at the drugstore so if i'm going to spend thirty dollars for a shampoo like i need to know the science behind it i need to know why it's better so i think that that is a trend that is going to continue and actually just become a lot more dominant in the category. I don't think it's going to be enough just to have a cool brand in hair care. You're going to have to have the science piece. And then I will tell you, I am very intrigued by AI. It's scary, but also fascinating. Interesting. Um, and yes. I'm just really curious to see like the role that AI will play in formulation development. So like if you were to code all of the ingredients, could AI understand the specific needs of a very specific hair type and create formulas for that? And then also just from like a recommendation perspective, taking all the data from YouTube, from the internet and all of these things and being able to create like this superpower sort of product pair like situation. Ooh, that is fascinating. I've never even thought of that. You know, there are a lot of skincare brands. And I, I yeah. do think skincare in some ways like kind of leads the charge like in, 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 in terms of trends. But there are a lot of skincare brands now that are launching where they literally are like, okay, get the app on your phone. And then we're going to do like a whole scan. And the camera on this phone is so advanced that it can mm. take your skin texture and then essentially develop a regimen based on what they're noticing. It's almost like one of those Vizia machines in your phone where it can say, okay, you're lacking hydration in this general area. You have hyperpigmentation up here. 
this is how we think that we should develop your regimen based on these things that you either have a lot of or need more of. Yeah. If that could happen with hair, that could be a complete game changer. Completely. Like totally. imagine just like like taking like yeah. taking a picture of your hair, like a strand of your hair on your phone and then uploading it and they're like your hair is thinning, like dramatically. Yeah. We, yeah. we could figure this out just by looking at the cuticle or looking at your scalp, your scalp. Yeah. Oh my gosh, imagine people that have psoriasis of the scalp or deal with dandruff of the scalp, anything that causes flaking or itching or inflammation. If you were able to take a close-up of your scalp and send that in and they were able to almost diagnose you in a way just through an AI app on your phone. Yeah, and some of that is... Some of that is happening already, but it's very sort of manual and it can be biased in terms of like the recommendation. So having something that's like very objective AI generated could be very interesting. Nancy, we are heading the end of our conversation. I have loved getting to know you and getting to talk to you. When you come to LA next, please let me know. Oh my gosh, absolutely. Dinner, we need to have a whole chat. I would love, love, love to meet you. I want to end with just a really quick speed round. Okay. Okay. You walk into a Sephora. You can't buy your own product. What is the first thing you're going to buy? Probably sunscreen because I use it up really frequently. (laughs) One product that everybody should try from the brand. Don't despair a pair of deep conditioning mask. Because it's the number one for a reason. number one. What is the biggest beauty mistake you've ever made? Um, Probably trying to cure my acne by overusing certain acids. Salicylic acid? Exactly. And then like, like, um, I think it's like... What's the peroxide? Is it benzoyl oh, peroxide? Oh, benzoyl peroxide going hard on yeah. those too. And it actually just made the acne worse because of the whole barrier thing. So how were you able to get your skin, you know, to a place where you were happy with it? So I had to get facials pretty regularly while also keeping the barrier hydrated. And I just had to pull back on all of those like very like harsh products. <laughs> Is there a piece of business advice you wish you had gotten before you started Briogeo? I think the biggest thing, and I tell a lot of people this, I feel like I thought I was superwoman and I could do everything. And I started burning out very early on. And the truth is like, I couldn't do everything well. And so one, it's learn how to delegate, but in order to delegate, you've got to make sure that you're building out your team with people that you can actually delegate to. And that is so, so key. As an angel investor, what advice do you give people who are looking to get investments into their brand? Yeah, and I'll say this specifically for beauty, but there is so much noise out there. There are new Mm. brands launching every single week. You can't just have a cool looking brand. You can't just have cool packaging. You have to have formulas that are innovative and you have to have a very unique approach to how you are solving a problem or a need. Yes. I think solution oriented is key. A lot of, a lot of times when I talk to people about their big ideas, I'm like, this like looks really great, but what are you doing to service the person that would potentially buy this? Exactly. Okay. How can people get in touch with you? How, like, how can they connect with you? (laughs) Yeah. So I can't believe we actually didn't talk about this, but Um, On International Women's Day this year, I actually launched a content site, nancytwine.com, 
Um, and I was really inspired to create this site because I wanted to be able to share a lot of the lessons and just advice that I've picked up during my 10-year entrepreneurial journey, but not just have it focus on the work, having it focus on the full sort of 360 of one's whole self. Because I know firsthand that if you pour everything into trying to achieve success with your business or your career, other parts of your life are going to fall. You have to nourish all of it. You've, you've got to nourish all of it. And so I created this site to be able to put out content, to share these gems with the world. But there's also a section called Ask Nancy where you can submit questions. I answer them both on the site, on social media. And I'm also on this app called Intro where you can also set up a one-on-one -on -one with me. So am I. <laughs> Intro <Awesome>. sisters. <laughs> yes. yes. Okay, y'all, if it. you haven't new used intro, I just had a few appointments this week with some incredible people that are launching their own brands. Go talk to Nancy. You have to pay for the session, but there's really no yeah. barrier to entry. If you want to talk to Nancy, you can. And that's that's an untapped resource I think a lot of people aren't using. Completely. Have you had a lot of success, like not success, but have you had a lot of fun talking to the people on I intro? I actually have. It's been really incredible. Like I love it. And I think it also shows like how much insight you can give in like even 15, 30 minutes, you know, because you come prepared, you have your stuff together and you just get it out there. All right, that's it. Thank you everyone for listening. We will be back on Tuesday with the week's most buzzy beauty news. Make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Spotify so you don't miss any breaking beauty news or product reviews. And if you want to support us, be sure to follow us at Gloss Angeles Pod on all platforms and join our Facebook group. Plus, find every product we recommend on our website, glossangelespod.com, as well as links to the stories and news we report each week. You can follow us, your hosts, I'm Sarah Tan, that's S-A-R-A-T-A-N, on all social platforms. And I'm Kirby Johnson, K-I-R-B-I-E, on all social platforms. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.